A Dark Day by Madison Julius Cohen. Though summer walks the world today with corn-crowned hours for her guard, her thoughts have clad themselves in gray and wait in autumn's weedy yard. And where the larkspur and the flocks spread carpets wheresoever she pass, she seems to stand with somber locks bound bleak with fog-washed zinnias, falls terracotta-colored flowers, whose discs the trickling wet has tinged, with dingy luster when the bowers thin, flame-flecked leaves the frost has singed. Or with slow feet mid gaunt gold blooms, of marigolds her fingers twist, she seems to pass with false perfumes and dreams of sullen rain and mist. Greetings, everybody. CJ here wishing you and yours a very happy Halloween. Welcome to part one of the 2022 Dangerous History Podcast Halloween special. And for this year's Halloween specials, I'm going back to what I used to do up till a few years ago, which is to do episodes where I share with you, I read to you some kind of Halloween and, you know, spooky and or autumn and or scary-type poems and stories. And these are, of course, poems and stories that are old enough that they're in the public domain, so I don't have to worry about getting any permission or paying anybody royalties or what have you. So I did this for, I don't know, at least two or three years a while back. And what I would do is I would do a part one episode with some poems and stories that would be for everybody on the public feed. And then I would do a part two episode just for supporters of the show on Patreon and Subscribestar with additional stories and poems. And then I think it was the year that I was doing DHP Heroes on John Carpenter around Halloween time that I didn't do one of these story episodes. And then after that, I got time crunch, particularly once COVID hit and my day job went haywire. And so for the last few years, I've been doing Halloween episodes that are, you know, me and a guest talking about books and movies and things like that, because of course I'm a big horror fan. But this year, now that I actually have some additional time to devote to the podcast, thanks to everybody who kicked into the Indiegogo to buy me my freedom a few months ago, I decided to go back to the old format. And so that's what I'm going to do again. I'm going to do this episode, part one, which is for everybody, supporters or not. And then a part two episode with additional stories and poems that will be just for supporters on Patreon and Subscribestar at five bucks a month or more. This one, by the way, I'm only doing one story. And the reason I'm doing only one story, bookended by a short poem at the beginning and another short poem at the end, the reason I'm only doing one story, and in previous you know versions of this in years back, I've done usually at least two or three stories, but... The one I'm doing in this episode is a pretty long one. In fact, it's one that probably qualifies as a novelette, and if it's not a novelette, it's borderline novelette. It is one of my favorite Victorian-era English 
Spooky Stories. It's written by a guy named Edward Bulwer-Lytton, who was a 19th century British nobleman, author, and politician. And so this story was first published all the way back in 1859. So, you know, keep that in mind in terms of some of the idioms and the references and the style, etc. But I think it's a very interesting story that does have some creepy moments and also has, you know, some kind of serious intellectual thought behind it, too. So I hope you enjoy it. And again, if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon or Subscribestar at five bucks a month or more, look for part two with some additional stories, maybe even one by me, to come out sometime between when this episode airs and Halloween itself. But before I launch into our centerpiece story for this episode, let me give some more shout outs to awesome people who chipped in 25 bucks or more per month to the Indiegogo campaign back a couple months ago. So my next 20 awesome individuals to thank, and again, I just go with whatever first and last name or pseudonym you put in Indiegogo. And let me preemptively ask for forgiveness if I mispronounce anybody's name or anything like that, but I'm doing my best and I genuinely do appreciate all of you. So, big thanks to Bill Ardito, Christopher Hiran, Jeff Hansen, Donnie Bruno, Lisa Gansky, Ryan Mortensen, Deborah Mace, Zane Placey, Alan Overholzer, Chris Bechtel, James Rosano, Jake Oliver, Alberto Gonzalez, JZ2000, Benjamin Lee, Dr. Jeff, Gary Priest, D. Schollmeyer, Ben Workman, and Peter Calais. Thank you all very much. And I just want to say Halloween has always been one of my favorite, perhaps my favorite of all holidays. And I really enjoy it. And I really miss living in a place where there's a proper autumn. I lived a couple years in East Tennessee and we actually got, you know, changing leaves and, you know, some seriously chilly weather often by mid to late October. And, you know, with Florida, yeah, we start to get our first slightly cool days and whatever in October, but it's not the same. And one of the things I miss ever since I moved back to Florida is those beautiful autumn days. So to all of you listening who live in a place that gets a proper autumn, this time of year, I'm very jealous of you, much as I love Florida. But there's just something really awesome about Halloween. It's, you know, yeah, we don't get a proper autumn in Florida, but it is when the weather at least starts to break a little bit and isn't brutal after, you know, six to eight months of just sauna. And so that's nice. And especially in the mornings lately, it has been very nice. And then I've always just loved the aesthetic of Halloween. I've always just loved, you know, all the spooky stuff, whether it's serious or lighthearted. You know, I've always been a huge fan of horror movies and scary stories and novels and so forth. And then I also recently realized another reason I love Halloween, aside from the fact that it's one that you can continue to enjoy even when you're no longer a kid and no longer, you know, trick-or-treating and all that, is that it's the only major, you know, widespread popular holiday in the U.S. anyway that doesn't have a huge amount of, like, family baggage to it. In other words, you know, if you have relatives that live nearby, like, you might have a Halloween party with them or whatever, but, like, unlike Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever, there's not this, you know, pressure to travel or pressure to have, you know, all your relatives from out of town come to your house or whatever like that. 
And, you know, I'm sorry, as much as it's sometimes nice to see people at those sort of things, it does make Christmas and Thanksgiving or whatever else, you know, you might celebrate that's sort of like that. It does make it a bit more stressful and less relaxing than it otherwise would be. Like, I've noticed that I usually enjoy Christmases and Thanksgivings where it's like just me and my nuclear family and maybe one or two, you know, fairly close relatives that live nearby. And that when it's like the big Griswold get-together or whatever, it oftentimes ends up being exhausting and stressful. And what, even if everything goes smoothly and everybody gets along, it oftentimes still is uh, stressful and exhausting, whether everybody's coming to your place or whether you're traveling far, you know, to somebody else's place. So anyway, Halloween's kind of cool because you, you basically, it's okay to just keep it to like your little circle and your nuclear family. But anyway, enough yammering from me. Uh, I hope you have a great Halloween, and I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode, and I hope you enjoy part two, the bonus part, if you're a supporter of my work. The Haunters and the Haunted, or The House and the Brain, by Edward Bulwer-Lytton. A friend of mine, who is a man of letters and a philosopher, said to me one day, as if between jest and earnest, Fancy, since we last met I have discovered a haunted house in the midst of London. Really haunted? And by what? Ghosts? Well, I can't answer these questions. All I know is this. Six weeks ago, I and my wife were in search of a furnished apartment. Passing a quiet street, we saw on the window of one of the houses a bill. Apartments furnished. The situation suited us. We entered the house, liked the rooms, and engaged them by the week, and left them the third day. No power on earth could have reconciled my wife to stay longer. And I don't wonder at it. What did you see? Excuse me, I have no desire to be ridiculed as a superstitious dreamer, nor, on the other hand, could I ask you to accept on my affirmation what you would hold to be incredible without the evidence of your own senses. Let me only say this. It was not so much what we saw or heard, in which you might fairly suppose that we were the dupes of our own excited fancy, or the victims of imposture in others, that drove us away as it was an undefinable terror which seized both of us whenever we passed by the door of a certain unfurnished room, in which we neither saw nor heard anything. And the strangest marvel of all was that for once in my life I agreed with my wife. Silly woman though she be, and allowed after the third night that it was impossible to stay a fourth in that house. Accordingly, on the fourth morning I summoned the woman who kept the house and attended on us, and told her that the rooms did not quite suit us, and we would not stay out our week. She said dryly, I know why. You have stayed longer than any other lodger. 
Few ever stayed a second night, none before you a third. But I take it that they have been very kind to you. They who? I asked, affecting a smile. Why, they who haunt the house, whoever they are. I don't mind them. I remember them many years ago, when I lived in this house not as a servant. But I know they will be the death of me some day. I don't care. I'm old and must die soon anyway, and then I shall be with them and in this house still. The woman spoke with so dreary a calmness that really it was a sort of awe that prevented my conversing with her further. I paid for my week, and too happy were I and my wife to get off so cheaply. You excite my curiosity, said I. Nothing I should like better than to sleep in a haunted house. Pray give me the address of the one which you left so ignominiously. My friend gave me the address, and when we parted, I walked straight toward the house thus indicated. It is situated on the north side of Oxford Street, in a dull but respectable thoroughfare. I found the house shut up, no bill on the window, and no response to my knock. As I was turning away, a beer boy collecting pewter pots at the neighboring areas said to me, Do you want anyone at that house, sir? Yes, I heard it was to be let. Let? Why, the woman who kept it is dead. Has been dead these three weeks, and no one can be found to stay there, though Mr. J offered ever so much. He offered Mother, who chars for him, one pound a week just to open and shut the windows, and she would not. Would not? And why? The house is haunted, and the old woman who kept it was found dead in her bed with her eyes wide open. They say the devil strangled her. Pooh, you speak of Mr. J. Is he the owner of the house? Yes. Where does he live? In G Street, number blank. What is he? In any business? No, sir, nothing particular, a single gentleman. I gave the pot boy the gratuity earned by his liberal information and proceeded to Mr. J. in G Street, which was close by the street that boasted the haunted house. I was lucky enough to find Mr. J. at home, an elderly man with intelligent countenance and prepossessing manners. I communicated my name and my business frankly. I said I heard the house was considered to be haunted, that I had a strong desire to examine a house with so equivocal a reputation, that I should be greatly obliged if he would allow me to hire it, though only for a night. I was willing to pay for that privilege, whatever he might be inclined to ask. Sir, said Mr. J., with great courtesy, the house is at your service for as short or as long a time as you please. Rent is out of the question. The obligation will be on my side, should you be able to discover the cause of the strange phenomena, which at present deprive it of all value. I cannot let it, for I cannot even get a servant to keep it in order, or answer the door. Unluckily, the house is haunted, if I may use that expression, not only by night, but by day, though at night the disturbances are of a more unpleasant and sometimes of a more alarming character. 
The poor old woman who died in it three weeks ago was a pauper whom I took out of a workhouse. For in her childhood, she had been known to some of my family, and had once been in such good circumstances that she had rented that house of my uncle. She was a woman of superior education and strong mind, and was the only person I could ever induce to remain in the house. Indeed, since her death, which was sudden, and the coroner's inquest, which gave it a notoriety in the neighborhood, I have so despaired of finding any person to take charge of it, much more of a tenant, that I would most willingly let it rent free for a year to anyone who would pay its rates and taxes. How long ago did the house acquire this character? That I can scarcely tell you, but many years since, the old woman I spoke of said it was haunted when she rented it, between 30 and 40 years ago. The fact is that my life has been spent in the East Indies, and in the civil service of the East India Company. I returned to England last year, on inheriting the fortune of an uncle, among whose possessions was the house in question. I found it shut up and uninhabited. I was told that it was haunted, and no one would inhabit it. I smiled at what seemed to me so idle a story. I spent some money in repainting it and roofing it, added to its old-fashioned furniture a few modern articles, advertised it, and obtained a lodger for a year. He was a retired colonel on half pay. He came in with his family, a son and a daughter, and four or five servants. They all left the house the next day. And although they deponed that they had all seen something different, that something was equally terrible to all. I really could not, in conscience, sue or even blame the colonel for breach of agreement. Then I put in the old woman I have spoken of, and she was empowered to let the house in apartments. I never had one lodger who stayed there more than three days. I do not tell you their stories. No two lodgers have exactly the same phenomena been repeated. It is better that you should judge for yourself than enter the house with an imagination influenced by previous narratives. Only be prepared to see and to hear something or other, and take whatever precautions you yourself please. Have you ever had a curiosity yourself to pass a night in that house? Yes, I passed not a night, but three hours in broad daylight alone in that house. My curiosity is not satisfied, but it is quenched. I have no desire to renew the experiment. You cannot complain, you see, sir, that I am not sufficiently candid. And unless your interest be exceedingly eager and your nerves unusually strong, I honestly add that I advise you not to pass a night in that house. My interest is exceedingly keen, said I. And though only a coward will boast of his nerves in situations wholly unfamiliar to him, yet my nerves have been seasoned in such variety of danger that I have the right to rely on them even in a haunted house. Mr. J. said very little more. He took the keys of the house out of his bureau and gave them to me, and, thanking him cordially for his frankness and his urbane concession to my wish, I carried off my prize. 
Impatient for the experiment, as soon as I reached home, I summoned my confidential servant. A young man of gay spirits, fearless temper, and as free from superstitious prejudice as anyone I could think of. F, said I, you remember in Germany how disappointed we were at not finding a ghost in that old castle which was said to be haunted by a headless apparition? Well, I have heard of a house in London which, I have reason to hope, is decidedly haunted. I mean to sleep there tonight. From what I hear, there is no doubt that something will allow itself to be seen or to be heard. Something, perhaps, excessively horrible. Do you think, if I take you with me, I may rely on your presence of mind, whatever may happen? Oh, sir, pray trust me, said he grinning with delight. Very well, then, here are the keys of the house. This is the address. Go now, select for me any bedroom you please, and since the house has not been inhabited for weeks, make up a good fire, air the bed well. See, of course, that there are candles as well as fuel. Take with you my revolver and my dagger. So much for my weapons. Arm yourself equally well, and if we are not a match for a dozen ghosts, we shall be but a sorry couple of Englishmen. I was engaged for the rest of the day on business so urgent that I had not leisure to think much on the nocturnal adventure to which I had plighted my honor. I dined alone and very late, and while dining, read, as is my habit. The volume I selected was one of Macaulay's essays. I thought to myself that I would take the book with me. There was so much healthfulness in the style and practical life in the subjects that it would serve as an antidote against the influences of superstitious fancy. Accordingly, about half-past nine, I put the book into my pocket and strolled leisurely toward the haunted house. I took with me a favorite dog, an exceedingly sharp, bold, and vigilant bull terrier, a dog fond of prowling about strange ghostly corners and passages at night in search of rats. A dog of dogs for a ghost. It was a summer night, but chilly, the sky somewhat gloomy and overcast. Still there was a moon, faint and sickly, but still a moon, and if the clouds permitted, after midnight it would be brighter. I reached the house, knocked, and my servant opened with a cheerful smile. All right, sir, and very comfortable. Oh, said I, rather disappointed. Have you not seen nor heard anything remarkable? Well, sir, I must own that I have heard something queer. What, what? The sound of feet pattering behind me, and once or twice small noises like whispers close at my ear. Nothing more. You are not at all frightened? I? Not a bit of it, sir. And the man's bold look reassured me on one point, namely that, happen what might, he would not desert me. We were in the hall, the street door closed, and my attention was now drawn to my dog. He had at first run in eagerly enough, but had sneaked back to the door, and was scratching and whining to get out. 
After I had patted him on the head and encouraged him gently, the dog seemed to reconcile himself to the situation and followed me and F through the house, but keeping close at my heels, instead of hurrying inquisitively in advance, which was his usual and normal habit in all strange places. We first visited the subterranean apartments, the kitchen and other offices, and especially the cellars, in which last were two or three bottles of wine still left in a bin, covered with cobwebs and evidently, by their appearance, undisturbed for many years. It was clear that the ghosts were not wine-bibbers. For the rest, we discovered nothing of interest. There was a gloomy little backyard with very high walls. The stones of this yard were very damp, and what with the damp and what with the dust and smoke grime on the pavement, our feet left a slight impression where we passed. And now appeared the first strange phenomenon witnessed by myself in this strange abode. I saw, just before me, the print of a foot suddenly form itself, as it were. I stopped, caught hold of my servant, and pointed to it. In advance of that footprint has suddenly dropped another. We both saw it. I advanced quickly to the place the footprint kept advancing before me. A small footprint, the foot of a child. The impression was too faint thoroughly to distinguish the shape, but it seemed to us both that it was the print of a naked foot. This phenomenon ceased when we arrived at the opposite wall, nor did it repeat itself when we returned. We remounted the stairs and entered the rooms on the ground floor. A dining parlor, a small back parlor, and a still smaller third room that had probably been appropriated to a footman. All still as death. We then visited the drawing rooms, which seemed fresh and new. In the front room, I seated myself in an armchair. F placed on the table the candlestick with which he had lighted us. I told him to shut the door. As he turned to do so, a chair opposite to me moved from the wall quickly and noiselessly and dropped itself about a yard from my own chair, immediately fronting it. Why, this is better than the turning tables, said I, laughing. And as I laughed, my dog put back his head and howled. F, coming back, had not observed the movement of the chair. He employed himself now in stilling the dog. I continued to gaze on the chair, and fancied I saw on it a pale, blue, misty outline of a human figure, but an outline so indistinct that I could only distrust my own vision. The dog was now quiet. Put back the chair opposite to me, said I to F. Put it back to the wall. F obeyed. Was that you, sir? said he, turning abruptly. I, what? Why, something struck me. I felt it sharply on the shoulder, just here. No, said I, but we have jugglers present, and though we may not discover their tricks, we shall catch them before they frighten us. We did not stay long in the drawing rooms. In fact, they felt so damp and so chilly that I was glad to get to the fire upstairs. 
we locked the doors of the drawing rooms, a precaution which, I should observe, we had taken with all the rooms we had searched below. The bedroom my servant had selected for me was the best on the floor, a large one with two windows fronting the street. The four-posted bedstead, which took up no inconsiderable space, was opposite to the fire, which burned clear and bright. A door in the wall to the left between the bed and the window communicated with the room which my servant appropriated to himself. This last was a small room with a sofa bed, and had no communication with the landing place. No other door but that which conducted to the bedroom I was to occupy. On either side of my fireplace was a cupboard, without locks, flush with the wall, and covered with the same dull brown paper. We examined these cupboards, only hooks to suspend female dresses, nothing else. We sounded the walls, evidently solid, the outer walls of the building. Having finished the survey of these apartments, warmed myself a few moments and lighted my cigar, I then, still accompanied by F, went forth to complete my reconnoiter. In the landing place, there was another door. It was closed firmly. Sir, said my servant in surprise, I unlocked this door with all the others when I first came in. It cannot have got locked from the inside, for it is a... Before he had finished his sentence, the door, which neither of us was then touching, opened quietly of itself. We looked at each other a single instant. The same thought seized both. Some human agency might be detected here. I rushed in first, my servant followed. A small, blank, dreary room without furniture, a few empty boxes and hampers in a corner, a small window, the shutters closed, not even a fireplace, no other door but that by which we had entered. No carpet on the floor, and the floor seemed very old, uneven, worm-eaten, mended here and there, as was shown by the whiter patches on the wood. But no living being, and no visible place in which a living being could have hidden. As we stood gazing around, the door by which we had entered closed as quietly as it had before opened. We were imprisoned. For the first time, I felt a creep of undefinable horror. Not so my servant. Why, they don't think to trap us, sir. I could break that trumpery door with a kick of my foot. Try first if it will open to your hand, said I, shaking off the vague apprehension that had seized me, while I open the shutters and see what is without. I unbarred the shutters. The window looked on the little backyard I have before described. There was no ledge without, nothing but sheer descent. No man getting out of that window would have found any footing till he had fallen on the stones below. F, meanwhile, was vainly attempting to open the door. He now turned round to me and asked my permission to use force. And I should here state, in justice to the servant, that, far from evincing any superstitious terror, his nerve, composure, and even gaiety amid circumstances so extraordinary compelled my admiration and made me congratulate myself on having secured a companion in every way fitted to the occasion. I willingly gave him the permission he required, 
But though he was a remarkably strong man, his force was as idle as his milder efforts. The door did not even shake to his stoutest kick. Breathless and panting, he desisted. I then tried the door myself, equally in vain. As I ceased from the effort, again that creep of horror came over me, but this time it was more cold and stubborn. I felt as if some strange and ghostly exhalation were rising from the chinks of that rugged floor and filling the atmosphere with a venomous influence hostile to human life. The door now very slowly and quietly opened of its own accord. We precipitated ourselves onto the landing place. We both saw a large pale light as large as the human figure, but shapeless and unsubstantial, move before us and ascend the stairs that led from the landing into the attics. I followed the light, and my servant followed me. It entered, to the right of the landing, a small garret, of which the door stood open. I entered in the same instant. The light then collapsed into a small globule, exceedingly brilliant and vivid rested a moment on a bed in the corner, quivered, and vanished. We approached the bed and examined it, a half-tester such as is commonly found in attics and devoted to servants. On the drawers that stood near it, we perceived an old faded silk kerchief, with the needle still left in the rent half-repaired. The kerchief was covered with dust. Probably it had belonged to the old woman who had died there and this might have been her sleeping room. I had sufficient curiosity to open the drawers. There were a few odds and ends of female dress and two letters tied round with a narrow ribbon of faded yellow. I took the liberty to possess myself of the letters. We found nothing else in the room worth noticing, nor did the light reappear. But we distinctly heard as we turned to go, a pattering footfall on the floor just before us. We went through the other attics, in all four, the footfall still preceding us. Nothing to be seen, nothing but the footfall heard. I had the letters in my hand. Just as I was descending the stairs, I distinctly felt my wrist seized, and a faint, soft effort made to draw the letters from my clasp. I only held them more tightly, and the effort ceased. We regained the bedchamber appropriated to myself, and I then remarked that my dog had not followed us when we had left it. He was thrusting himself close to the fire and trembling. I was impatient to examine the letters, and while I read them, my servant opened a little box in which he had deposited the weapons I had ordered him to bring took them out, placed them on a table close at my bedhead, and then occupied himself in soothing the dog, who, however, seemed to heed him very little. The letters were short. They were dated, the dates exactly thirty-five years ago. They were evidently from a lover to his mistress, or a husband to some young wife. Not only the terms of expression but a distinct reference to a former voyage indicated the writer to have been a seafarer. The spelling and handwriting were those of a man imperfectly educated, but still the language itself was forcible. In the expressions of endearment, there was a kind of rough, wild love, 
but here and there were dark, unintelligible hints at some secret not of love. Some secret that seemed of crime. We ought to love each other, was one of the sentences, I remember, for how everyone else would execrate us if all was known. Again, don't let anyone be in the same room with you at night. You talk in your sleep. And again, what's done can't be undone, and I tell you there's nothing against us unless the dead should come to life. Here was interlined, in uh, better handwriting, females. They do! At the end of the letter, latest in date, the same female hand had written these words. Lost at sea the 4th of June, the same day as blank. I put down the letters and began to muse over their contents. Fearing, however, that the train of thought into which I fell might unsteady my nerves, I fully determined to keep my mind in a fit state, to cope with whatever of the marvelous the advancing night might bring forth. I roused myself, laid the letters on the table, stirred up the fire, which was still bright and cheering, and opened my volume of Macaulay. I read quietly enough till about half-past eleven. I then threw myself dressed upon the bed and told my servant he might retire to his own room, but must keep himself awake. I bade him leave open the doors between the two rooms. Thus alone, I kept two candles burning on the table by my bedhead. I placed my watch beside the weapons and calmly resumed my Macaulay. Opposite to me, the fire burned clear, and on the hearthrug, seemingly asleep, lay the dog. In about twenty minutes, I felt an exceedingly cold air pass by my cheek like a sudden draft. I fancied the door to my right, communicating with the landing place, must have got open. But no, it was closed. I then turned my glance to the left and saw the flames of the candles violently swayed as by a wind. At the same moment, the watch beside the revolver softly slid from the table. Softly, softly. No visible hand. It was gone. I sprang up, seizing the revolver with the one hand, the dagger with the other. I was not willing that my weapons should fare the fate of the watch. Thus armed, I looked round the floor. No sign of the watch. Three slow, loud, distinct knocks were now heard at the bedhead. My servant called out, Is that you, sir? No. Be on your guard. The dog now roused himself and sat on his haunches, his ears moving quickly forward and backward. He kept his eyes fixed on me, with a look so strange that he concentrated all my attention on himself. Slowly he rose, all his hair bristling, and stood perfectly rigid, and with the same wild stare. I had no time, however, to examine the dog. Presently, my servant emerged from his room, and if I ever saw horror in the human face, it was then. I should not have recognized him, had we met in the streets, so altered was every liniment. He passed by me quickly, saying in a whisper that seemed scarcely to come from his lips, Run! Run! It is after me! He gained the door to the landing, pulled it open, and rushed forth. I followed him onto the landing involuntarily, calling him to stop. But, without heeding me, he bounded down the stairs, clinging to the balusters, and taking several steps at a time. 
I heard where I stood, the street door open, heard it again clap too. I was left alone in the haunted house. It was but for a moment that I remained undecided whether or not to follow my servant. Pride and curiosity alike forbade so dastardly a flight. I re-entered my room, closing the door after me, and proceeded cautiously into the interior chamber. I encountered nothing to justify my servant's horror. I again carefully examined the walls to see if there were any concealed door. I could find no trace of one, not even a seam in the dull brown paper with which the room was hung. How, then, had the thing, whatever it was, which had so scared him, obtained ingress except through my own chamber? I returned to my room, shut and locked the door that opened upon the interior one, and stood on the hearth, expectant and prepared. I now perceived that the dog had slunk into an angle of the wall and was pressing close against it, as if literally striving to force his way into it. I approached the animal and spoke to it. The poor brute was evidently beside itself with terror. It showed all its teeth, the slaver dropping from its jaws, and would certainly have bitten me if I had touched it. It did not seem to recognize me. Whoever has seen at the zoological gardens a rabbit fascinated by a serpent, cowering in a corner, may form some idea of the anguish which the dog exhibited. Finding all efforts to soothe the animal in vain, and fearing that his bite might be as venomous in that state as if in the madness of hydrophobia, I left him alone, placed my weapons on the table beside the fire, seated myself, and recommenced my Macaulay. Perhaps, in order not to appear seeking credit for a courage, or rather a coolness which the reader may conceive I exaggerate, I may be pardoned if I pause to indulge in one or two egotistical remarks. As I hold presence of mind, or what is called courage, to be precisely proportioned to familiarity with the circumstances that lead to it, so I should say that I had been long sufficiently familiar with all experiments that appertain to the marvelous. I had witnessed many very extraordinary phenomena in various parts of the world, phenomena that would be either totally disbelieved if I stated them or ascribed to supernatural agencies. Now, my theory is that the supernatural is the impossible, and that what is called supernatural is only something in the laws of nature, of which we have been hitherto ignorant. Therefore, if a ghost rise before me, I have not the right to say, so then, the supernatural is possible. But rather, so, then, the apparition of a ghost is contrary to received opinion within the laws of nature, namely, not supernatural. Now, in all that I had hitherto witnessed, and indeed in all the wonders which the amateurs of mystery in our age record as facts, a material living agency is always required. On the continent, you will still find magicians who assert that they can raise spirits. Assume for a moment that they assert truly. Still, the living material form of the magician is present. He is the material agency by which, from some constitutional peculiarities, certain strange phenomena are represented to your natural senses. 
Accept again as truthful the tales of spirit manifestation in America. Musical or other sounds, writings on paper produced by no discernible hand, articles of furniture moved without apparent human agency, or the actual sight and touch of hands to which no body seemed to belong. Still, there must be found the medium, or living being, with constitutional peculiarities capable of obtaining these signs. In fine, in all such marvels, supposing even that there is no imposture, there must be a human being like ourselves, by whom, or through whom, the effects presented to human beings are produced. It is so with the now familiar phenomenon of mesmerism, or electrobiology. The mind of the person operated on is affected through a material living agent. Nor, supposing it true that a mesmerized patient can respond to the will or passes of a mesmerizer a hundred miles distant, is the response less occasioned by a material being. It may be through a material fluid, call it electric, call it otic, call it what you will, which has the power of traversing space and passing obstacles, that the material effect is communicated from one to the other. Hence, all that I had hitherto witnessed, or expected to witness, in this strange house, I believed to be occasioned through some agency or medium, as mortal as myself. And this idea necessarily prevented the awe with which those who regard as supernatural beings that are not within the ordinary operations of nature might have been impressed by the adventures of that memorable night. As, then, it was my conjecture that all that was presented or would be presented to my senses must originate in some human being gifted by constitution with the power so to present them, and having some motive so to do, I felt an interest in my theory which, in its way, was rather philosophical than superstitious. And I can clearly say that I was in as tranquil a temper for observation as any practical experimentalist could be in awaiting the effects of some rare, though perhaps perilous, chemical combination. Of course, the more I kept my mind detached from fancy, the more the temper fitted for observation would be obtained. And I therefore riveted eye and thought on the strong daylight sense in the page of my Macaulay. I now became aware that something interposed between the page and the light. The page was overshadowed. I looked up and saw what I shall find very difficult, perhaps impossible, to describe. It was a darkness, shaping itself out of the air in very undefined outline. I cannot say it was of human form, and yet it had more of a resemblance to a human form, or rather shadow, than anything else. As it stood, wholly apart and distinct from the air and the light around it, its dimensions seemed gigantic. The summit nearly touched the ceiling. While I gazed, a feeling of intense cold seized me. An iceberg before me could not more have chilled me, nor could the cold of an iceberg have been more purely physical. I feel convinced that it was not the cold caused by fear. As I continued to gaze, I thought, but this I cannot say with precision, that I distinguished two eyes looking down on me from the height. One moment I seemed to distinguish them clearly, the next they seemed gone. But two rays 
of a pale blue light frequently shot through the darkness, as from the height on which I half-believed, half-doubted that I had encountered the eyes. I strove to speak. My voice utterly failed me. I could only think to myself, is this fear? It is not fear. I strove to rise, in vain. I felt as weighted down by an irresistible force. Indeed, my impression was that of an immense and overwhelming power opposed to my volition. That sense of utter inadequacy to cope with a force beyond man's, which one may feel physically in a storm at sea, in a conflagration, or when confronting some terrible wild beast, or rather, perhaps, the sharks of the ocean, I felt morally. Opposed to my will was another will, uh, far superior to its strength as storm, fire, and shark, or superior in material force to the force of man. And now, as this impression grew on me, now came at last horror. Horror to a degree that no words can convey. Still I retained pride, if not courage, and in my own mind I said, This is horror, but it is not fear. Unless I fear, I cannot be harmed. My reason rejects this thing. It is an illusion I do not fear. With a violent effort, I succeeded at last in stretching out my hand toward the weapon on the table. As I did so, on the arm and shoulder, I received a strange shock, and my arm fell to my side powerless. And now, to add to my horror, the light began slowly to wane from the candles. They were not, as it were, extinguished, but their flame seemed very gradually withdrawn. It was the same with the fire. The light was extracted from the fuel. In a few minutes, the room was in utter darkness. The dread that came over me to be thus in the dark, with that dark thing whose power was so immensely felt, brought a reaction of nerve. In fact, Terror had reached that climax that either my senses must have deserted me or I must have burst through the spell. I did burst through it. I found voice, though the voice was a shriek. I remember that I broke forth with words like these. I do not fear. My soul does not fear. And at the same time, I found strength to rise. Still, in that profound gloom, I rushed to one of the windows, tore aside the curtain, flung open the shutters. My first thought was, light. And when I saw the moon, high, clear, and calm, I felt a joy that almost compensated for the previous terror. There was the moon. There was also the light from the gas lamps in the deserted, slumberous street. I turned to look back into the room. The moon penetrated its shadow very palely and partially, but still there was light. The dark thing, whatever it might be, was gone. Except that I could yet see a dim shadow, which seemed the shadow of that shade, against the opposite wall. My eye now rested on the table, and from under the table, which was without cloth or cover, an old mahogany round table, rose a hand visible as far as the wrist. It was a hand, seemingly as much of flesh and blood as my own, but the hand of an aged person, lean, wrinkled, small too, a woman's hand. That hand very softly closed on the two letters that lay on the table, 
hand and letters both vanished. Then came the same three loud measured knocks I had heard at the bedhead before this extraordinary drama had commenced. As these sounds slowly ceased, I felt the whole room vibrate sensibly. And at the far end rose, as from the floor, sparks or globules like bubbles of light, many-colored, green, yellow, fire-red, azure. Up and down, to and fro, hither and thither, as tiny will-o'-the-wisps, the sparks moved, slower soft, each at its own caprice. A chair, as in the drawing-room below, was now advanced from the wall without apparent agency, and placed at the opposite side of the table. Suddenly, as forth from the chair grew a shape, a woman's shape. It was distinct as a shape of life, ghastly as a shape of death. The face was that of youth, with a strange, mournful beauty. The throat and shoulders were bare, the rest of the form in a loose robe of cloudy white. It began sleeking its long yellow hair, which fell over its shoulders. Its eyes were not turned toward me, but to the door. It seemed listening, watching, waiting. The shadow of the shade in the background grew darker, and again I thought I beheld the eyes gleaming out from the summit of the shadow, eyes fixed upon that shape. As if from the door, although it did not open, grew out another shape, equally distinct, equally ghostly. A man's shape, a young man's. It was in the dress of the last century, or rather, in a likeness of such dress. For both the male shape and the female, though defined, were evidently unsubstantial, impalpable, simulacre, phantasms. And there was something incongruous, grotesque yet fearful, in the contrast between the elaborate finery, the courtly precision of that old-fashioned garb, with its ruffles and lace and buckles, and the corpse-like aspect and ghost-like stillness of the flitting wearer. Just as the male shape approached the female, the dark shadow darted from the wall, all three for a moment wrapped in darkness. When the pale light returned, the two phantoms were as if in the grasp of the shadow that towered between them, and there was a bloodstain on the breast of the female, and the phantom male was leaning on its phantom sword, and blood seemed trickling fast from the ruffles, from the lace, and the darkness of the intermediate shadow swallowed them up. They were gone. And again, the bubbles of light shot and sailed and undulated, growing thicker and thicker and more wildly confused in their movements. The closet door to the right of the fireplace now opened, and from the aperture came the form of a woman, aged. In her hand, she held letters, the very letters over which I had seen the hand close. And behind her I heard a footstep. She turned round as if to listen, and then she opened the letters and seemed to read. And over her shoulder I saw a livid face, the face as of a man long drowned, bloated, bleached, seaweed tangled in its dripping hair. And at her feet lay a form as of a corpse, and beside the corpse cowered a child, a miserable squalid child, with famine in its cheeks and fear in its eyes. As I looked in the old woman's face, the wrinkles and lines vanished, and it became a face of youth, hard-eyed, stony but still youth, 
and the shadow darted forth and darkened over these phantoms, as it had darkened over the last. Nothing now was left but the shadow, and on that my eyes were intently fixed, till again eyes grew out of the shadow, malignant serpent eyes. And the bubbles of light again rose and fell, and in their disordered, irregular, turbulent maze mingled with the wan moonlight. And now from these globules themselves, as from the shell of an egg, monstrous things burst out. The air grew filled with them. Larva, so bloodless and so hideous that I can in no way describe them except to remind the reader of the swarming life which the solar microscope brings before his eyes in a drop of water. Things transparent, supple, agile, chasing each other, devouring each other, forms like not ever beheld by the naked eye. As the shapes were without symmetry, so their movements were without order. In their very vagrancies, there was no sport. They came round me and round, thicker and faster and swifter, swarming over my head, crawling over my right arm, which was outstretched in involuntary command against all evil beings. Sometimes I felt myself touched, but not by them. Invisible hands touched me. Once I felt the clutch as of cold, soft fingers at my throat. I was still equally conscious that if I gave way to fear, I should be in bodily peril, and I concentrated all my faculties in the single focus of resisting stubborn will. And I turned my sight from the shadow, above all from those strange serpent eyes, eyes that had now become distinctly visible. For there, though in naught else around me, I was aware that there was a will, and a will of intense, creative, working evil which might crush down my own. The pale atmosphere in the room began now to redden as if in the air of some near conflagration. The larva grew lurid as things that live in fire. Again the room vibrated, again were heard the three measured knocks, and again all things were swallowed up in the darkness of the dark shadow, as if out of that darkness all had come, into that darkness all returned. As the gloom receded, the shadow was wholly gone. Slowly as it had been withdrawn, the flame grew again into the candles on the table, again into the fuel in the grate. The whole room came once more calmly, healthfully into sight. The two doors were still closed, the door communicating with the servant's room still locked. In the corner of the wall, into which he had convulsively niched himself, lay the dog. I called to him. No movement. I approached. The animal was dead. His eyes protruded, his tongue out of his mouth, the froth gathered round his jaws. I took him in my arms. I brought him to the fire. I felt acute grief for the loss of my poor favorite, acute self-reproach. I accused myself of his death. I imagined he had died of fright. But what was my surprise on finding that his neck was actually broken, actually twisted out of the vertebrae? Had this been done in the dark? Must it not have been done by a hand human as mine? Must there not have been a human agency all the while in that room? Good cause to suspect it. I cannot tell. I cannot do more than state the fact fairly. 
the reader may draw his own inference. Another surprising circumstance. My watch was restored to the table from which it had been so mysteriously withdrawn. But it had stopped at the very moment it was so withdrawn. Nor, despite all the skill of the watchmaker, has it ever gone since. That is, it will go in a strange, erratic way for a few hours, and then come to a dead stop. It is worthless. Nothing more chanced for the rest of the night. Nor, indeed, had I longed to wait before the dawn broke. Not till it was broad daylight did I quit the haunted house. Before I did so, I revisited the little blind room in which my servant and I had been for a time imprisoned. I had a strong impression, for which I could not account, that from that room had originated the mechanism of the phenomena, if I may use the term, which had been experienced in my chamber. And though I entered it now in the clear day, with the sun peering through the filmy window, I still felt, as I stood on its floor, the creep of the horror which I had first experienced there the night before, and which had been so aggravated by what had passed in my own chamber. I could not, indeed, bear to stay more than half a minute within those walls. I descended the stairs, and again I heard the footfall before me. And when I opened the street door, I thought I could distinguish a very low laugh. I gained my own home, expecting to find my runaway servant there. But he had not presented himself. Nor did I hear more of him for three days, when I received a letter from him, dated from Liverpool, to this effect. Honored Sir, I humbly entreat your pardon, though I can scarcely hope that you will think I deserve it unless, which heaven forbid, you saw what I did. I feel that it will be years before I can recover myself, and as to being fit for service, it is out of the question. I am therefore going to my brother-in-law at Melbourne. The ship sails tomorrow. Perhaps the long voyage may set me up. I do nothing now but start and tremble, and fancy it is behind me. I humbly beg you, honored sir, to order my clothes and whatever wages are due to me to be sent to my mother's at Walworth. John knows her address. The letter ended with additional apologies, somewhat incoherent, and explanatory details as to effects that had been under the writer's charge. This flight may perhaps warrant a suspicion that the man wished to go to Australia, and had been somehow or other fraudulently mixed up with the events of the night. I say nothing in refutation of that conjecture. Rather, I suggest it is one that would seem to many persons the most probable solution of improbable occurrences. My own theory remained unshaken. I returned in the evening to the house to bring away in a hack cab the things I had left there with my poor dog's body. In this task I was not disturbed, nor did any incident worth note befall me, except that still, on ascending and descending the stairs, I heard the same footfall in advance. On leaving the house, I went to Mr. J's. He was at home. I returned him the keys, told him that my curiosity was sufficiently gratified, and was about to relate quickly what had passed when he stopped me and said, though with much politeness, that he had no longer any interest in a mystery which none had ever solved. I determined at least to tell him of the two letters I had read, as well as of the extraordinary manner in which they had disappeared. 
and I then inquired if he thought they had been addressed to the woman who had died in the house, and if there were anything in her early history which could possibly confirm the dark suspicions to which the letters gave rise. Mr. J. seemed startled, and after musing a few moments, answered, I know but little of the woman's earlier history, except, as I before told you, that her family were known to mine. But you revive some vague reminiscence to her prejudice. I will make inquiries and inform you of their result. Still, even if we could admit the popular superstition that a person who had been either the perpetrator or the victim of dark crimes in life could revisit, as a restless spirit, the scene in which those crimes had been committed, I should observe that the house was infested by strange sights and sounds before the old woman died. You smile. What would you say? I would say this that I am convinced if we could get to the bottom of these mysteries, we should find a living human agency. What? You believe it is all an imposture? For what object? Not an imposter in the ordinary sense of the word. If suddenly I were to sink into a deep sleep from which you could not awake me, but in that deep sleep could answer questions with an accuracy which I could not pretend to when awake, tell you what money you had in your pocket, nay, describe your very thoughts. It is not necessarily an imposture, any more than it is necessarily supernatural. I should be, unconsciously to myself, under a mesmeric influence, conveyed to me from a distance by a human being who had acquired power over me by previous rapport. Granting mesmerism so far carried to be effect, you are right. And you would infer from this that a mesmerizer might produce the extraordinary effects you and others have witnessed over inanimate objects, fill the air with sights and sounds, or impress our senses with the belief in them, we never having been in rapport with the person acting on us? No. What is commonly called mesmerism could not do this. But there may be a power akin to mesmerism, and superior to it. The power that in the old days was called magic. That such a power may extend to all inanimate objects of matter? I do not say. But if so, it would not be against nature. Only a rare power in nature, which might be given to constitutions with certain peculiarities, and cultivated by practice to an extraordinary degree. That such a power might extend over the dead, that is, over certain thoughts and memories that the dead may still retain and compel not that which ought properly to be called the soul, and which is far beyond human reach, but rather a phantom of what has been most earth-stained on earth, to make itself apparent to our senses, is a very ancient and obsolete theory upon which I will hazard no opinion. But I do not conceive the power would be supernatural. Let me illustrate what I mean from an experiment which... Paracelsus describes as not difficult, and which the author of The Curiosities of Literature cites as credible. A flower perishes. You burn it. Whatever were the elements of that flower while it lived are gone, dispersed, you know not whither. You can never discover nor recollect them. But you can, by chemistry, out of the burnt dust of that flower, raise a spectrum of the flower, just as it seemed in life. It may be the same with a human being. The soul has as much escaped you as the essence or elements of the flower. Still, you may make a spectrum of it. And this phantom, 
though in the popular superstition it is held to be the soul of the departed, must not be confounded with the true soul. It is but the edelon of the dead form. Hence, like the best attested stories of ghosts or spirits, the thing that most strikes us is the absence of what we hold to be the soul, that is, of superior emancipated intelligence. They come for little or no object. They seldom speak if they do come. They utter no ideas above those of an ordinary person on earth. These American spirit seers have published volumes of communications in prose and verse, which they assert to be given in the names of the most illustrious dead. Shakespeare, Bacon, heaven knows whom. Those communications, taking the best, are certainly not of a whit higher order than would be the communications from living persons of fair talent and education. They are wondrously inferior to what Bacon, Shakespeare, and Plato said and wrote when on earth. Nor, what is more notable, do they ever contain an idea that was not on the earth before. Wonderful, therefore, as such phenomena may be, granting them to be truthful, I see much that philosophy may question, nothing that it is incumbent on philosophy to deny, namely, nothing supernatural. They are but ideas conveyed somehow or other, we have not yet discovered the means from one mortal brain to another. Whether in so doing, tables walk of their own accord, or fiend-like shapes appear in a magic circle, or bodiless hands rise and remove material objects, or a thing of darkness, such as presented itself to me, frees our blood, still I am persuaded that these are but agencies conveyed as by electric wires to my own brain from the brain of another. In some constitutions, there is a natural chemistry, and these may produce chemic wonders. In others, a natural fluid, call it electricity, and these produce electric wonders. But they differ in this from normal science. They are alike objectless, purposeless, puerile, frivolous. They lead on to no grand results, and therefore the world does not heed, and true sages have not cultivated them. But sure I am that of all I saw or heard, a man, human as myself, was the remote originator. And, I believe, unconsciously to himself as to the exact effects produced. For this reason, no two persons, you say, have ever told you that they experienced exactly the same thing. Well, observe, no two persons ever experience exactly the same dream. If this were an ordinary imposture, the machinery would be arranged for results that would but little vary. If it were a supernatural agency permitted by the Almighty, it would surely be for some definite end. These phenomena belong to neither class. My persuasion is that they originate in some brain now far distant. That that brain had no distinct volition in anything that occurred that what does occur reflects but its devious, motley, ever-shifting, half-formed thoughts. In short, that it has been but the dreams of such a brain put into action and invested with a semi-substance. That this brain is of immense power, that it can set matter into movement, that it is malignant and destructive, I believe. Some material force must have killed my dog. It might, for aught I know, have sufficed to kill myself, had I been as subjugated by terror as the dog. 
had my intellect or my spirit given me no countervailing resistance in my will. It killed your dog? That is fearful. Indeed, it is strange that no animal can be induced to stay in that house, not even a cat. Rats and mice are never found in it. The instincts of the brute creation detect influences deadly to their existence. Man's reason has a sense less subtle because it has a resisting power more supreme. But enough, do you comprehend my theory? Yes, though imperfectly, and I accept any crotchet, pardon the word, however odd, rather than embrace at once the notion of ghosts and hobgoblins we imbibed in our nurseries. Still, to my unfortunate house, the evil is the same. What on earth can I do with the house? I will tell you what I would do. I am convinced, from my own internal feelings, that the small, unfurnished room, at right angles to the door of the bedroom which I occupied, forms a starting point or receptacle for the influences which haunt the house. And I strongly advise you to have the walls opened, the floor removed, nay, the whole room pulled down. I observe that it is detached from the body of the house, built over the small backyard, and could be removed without injury to the rest of the building. And you think that if I did that, you would cut off the telegraph wires? Try it. I am so persuaded that I am right that I will pay half the expense if you will allow me to direct the operations. Nay, I am well able to afford the cost. For the rest, allow me to write to you. About ten days afterward, I received a letter from Mr. J., telling me that he had visited the house since I had seen him, that he had found the two letters I had described replaced in the drawer from which I had taken them, that he had read them with misgivings like my own, that he had instituted a cautious inquiry about the woman to whom I rightly conjectured they had been written. It seemed that thirty-six years ago, a year before the date of the letters, she had married against the wishes of her relatives, an American of very suspicious character. In fact, he was generally believed to have been a pirate. She herself was the daughter of very respectable tradespeople, and had served in the capacity of nursery governess before her marriage. She had a brother, a widower, who was considered wealthy, and who had one child about six years old. A month after the marriage, the body of this brother was found in the Thames, near London Bridge. There seemed some marks of violence about his throat, but they were not deemed sufficient to warrant the inquest in any other verdict than that of found drowned. The American and his wife took charge of the little boy, the deceased brother having, by his will, left his sister the guardian of his only child. And in the event of the child's death, the sister inherited the child died about six months afterward. It was supposed to have been neglected and ill-treated. The neighbors deposed to have heard it shriek at night. The surgeon, who had examined it after death, said that it was emaciated as if from want of nourishment, and the body was covered with livid bruises. It seemed that one winter night the child had sought to escape had crept out into the backyard, tried to scale the wall, fallen back exhausted, and had been found at morning on the stones in a dying state. But though there was some evidence of cruelty, there was none of murder, and the aunt and her husband had sought to 
palliate cruelty by alleging the exceeding stubbornness and perversity of the child, who was declared to be half-witted. Be that as it may, at the orphan's death the aunt inherited her brother's fortune. Before the first wedded year was out, the American quitted England abruptly, and never returned to it. He obtained a cruising vessel, which was lost in the Atlantic two years afterward. The widow was left in affluence, but reverses of various kinds had befallen her. A bank broke, an investment failed, she went into a small business and became insolvent, then she entered into service, sinking lower and lower from housekeeper down to maid of all work, never long retaining a place, though nothing peculiar against her character was ever alleged. She was considered sober, honest, and peculiarly quiet in her ways. Still, nothing prospered with her. And so she had dropped into the workhouse, from which Mr. J. had taken her, to be placed in charge of the very house she had rented as mistress in the first year of her wedded life. Mr. J. added that he had passed an hour alone in the unfurnished room which I had urged him to destroy, and that his impressions of dread while there were so great, though he had neither heard nor seen anything, that he was eager to have the walls bared and the floors removed as I had suggested. He had engaged persons for the work and would commence any day I would name. The day was accordingly fixed. I repaired to the haunted house. We went into the blind, dreary room, took up the skirting and then the floors. Under the rafters, covered with rubbish, was found a trap door quite large enough to admit a man. It was closely nailed down with clamps and rivets of iron. On removing these, we descended into a room below, the existence of which had never been suspected. In this room there had been a window and a flue, but they had been bricked over evidently for many years. By the help of candles, we examined this place. It still retained some moldering furniture. Three chairs, an oak settee, a table, all of the fashion of about eighty years ago. There was a chest of drawers against the wall, in which we found, half-rotted away, old-fashioned articles of a man's dress, such as might have been worn eighty or a hundred years ago by a gentleman of some rank costly steel buckles and buttons, like those yet worn in court dresses, a handsome court sword, in a waistcoat, once been rich with gold lace, but which was now blackened and foul with damp, we found five guineas, a few silver coins, and an ivory ricket, probably for some place of entertaining long since passed away. But our main discovery was in a kind of iron safe fixed to the wall, the lock of which it cost us much trouble to get picked. In this safe were three shelves and two small drawers. Ranged on the shelves were several small bottles of crystal, hermetically stopped. They contained colorless, volatile essences, of what nature I shall say no more than that they were not poisons. Phosphor and ammonia entered into some of them. There were also some very curious glass tubes and a small pointed rod of iron with a large lump of rock crystal and another of amber, also a lodestone of great power. In one of the drawers we found a miniature portrait set in gold, and retaining the freshness of its colors most remarkably, considering the length of time it had probably been there. The portrait was that of a man who might be somewhat advanced in middle life, perhaps 47 or 48. 
It was a most peculiar face, a most impressive face. If you could fancy some mighty serpent transformed into man, preserving in the human lineaments the old serpent type, you would have a better idea of that countenance than long descriptions can convey. The width and flatness of frontal, the tapering elegance of contour, disguising the strength of the deadly jaw. The long, large, terrible eye, glittering in green as the emerald, and withal a certain ruthless calm, as if from the consciousness of an immense power. The strange thing was this. The instant I saw the miniature, I recognized a startling likeness to one of the rarest portraits in the world. The portrait of a man of rank only below that of royalty, who in his own day had made a considerable noise. History says little or nothing of him, but search the correspondence of his contemporaries, and you find reference to his wild daring, his bold profligacy, his restless spirit, his taste for the occult sciences. While still in the meridian of life, he died and was buried, so say the chronicles, in a foreign land. He died in time to escape the grasp of the law, for he was accused of crimes which would have given him to the headsman. After his death, the portraits of him, which had been numerous, for he had been a munificent encourager of art, were bought up and destroyed. It was supposed by his heirs, who might have been glad, could they have raised his very name from their splendid line. He had enjoyed vast wealth. A large portion of this was believed to have been embezzled by a favorite astrologer or soothsayer. At all events, it had unaccountably vanished at the time of his death. One portrait alone of him was supposed to have escaped the general destruction. I had seen it in the house of a collector some months before. It had made on me a wonderful impression, as it does on all who behold it, a face never to be forgotten. And there was that face in the miniature that lay within my hand. True that in the miniature the man was a few years older than in the portrait I had seen, or than the original was even at the time of his death. But a few years, why, between the date in which flourished that direful noble and the date in which the miniature was evidently painted, there was an interval of more than two centuries. While I was thus gazing, silent and wondering, Mr. J said, But is it possible? I have known this man. How? Where? cried I. In India, he was high in the confidence of the Raja of Blank, and well nigh drew him into a revolt which would have lost the Raja his dominions. The man was a Frenchman. His name, Devie, clever, bold, lawless. We insisted on his dismissal and banishment. It must be the same man, no two faces like this, yet this miniature seems nearly a hundred years old. Mechanically, I turned round the miniature to examine the back of it, and on the back was engraved a pentacle. In the middle of the pentacle, a ladder, and the third step of the ladder was formed by the date 1765. Examining still more minutely, I detected a spring. This, on being pressed, opened the back of the miniature as a lid. Withinside the lid were engraved, Mariana, to thee. Be faithful in life and in death too. Here follows a name that I will not mention, but it was not unfamiliar to me. 
I had heard it spoken of by old men in my childhood as the name borne by a dazzling charlatan who had made a great sensation in London for a year or so and had fled the country on the charge of a double murder within his own house, that of his mistress and his rival. I said nothing of this to Mr. J., to whom, reluctantly, I resigned the miniature. We had found no difficulty in opening the first drawer within the iron safe. We found great difficulty in opening the second. It was not locked, but it resisted all efforts, till we inserted in the chinks the edge of a chisel. When we had thus drawn it forth, we found a very singular apparatus in the nicest order. Upon a small, thin book, or rather tablet, was placed a saucer of crystal. This saucer was filled with a clear liquid. On that liquid floated a kind of compass, with a needle shifting rapidly round. But instead of the usual points of a compass were seven strange characters, not very unlike those used by astrologers to denote the planets. A very peculiar, but not strong nor displeasing, odor came from this drawer, which was lined with a wood that we afterward discovered to be hazel. Whatever the cause of this odor, it produced a material effect on the nerves. We all felt it, even the two workmen who were in the room. A creeping, tingling sensation, from the tips of the fingers to the roots of the hair. Impatient to examine the tablet, I removed the saucer. As I did so, the needle of the compass went round and round, with exceeding swiftness, and I felt a shock that ran through my whole frame, so that I dropped the saucer on the floor. The liquid was spilt, the saucer was broken, the compass rolled to the end of the room, and at that instant the walls shook to and fro as if a giant had swayed and rocked them. The two workmen were so frightened that they ran up the ladder by which we had descended from the trap door, but, seeing that nothing more happened, they were easily induced to return. Meanwhile, I had opened the tablet. It was bound in plain red leather with a silver clasp. It contained but one sheet of thick vellum, and on that sheet were inscribed, within a double pentacle, words in old monkish Latin, which are literally to be translated thus. On all that it can reach within these walls, sentient or inanimate, living or dead, as moves the needle, so works my will. Accursed be the house, and restless the dwellers therein. We found no more. Mr. J. burned the tablet and its anathema. He raised to the foundation the part of the building containing the secret room, with the chamber over it. He had then the courage to inhabit the house himself for a month, and a quieter, better-conditioned house could not have been found in all London. Subsequently, he let it to advantage, and his tenant made no complaints. But my story is not yet done. A few days after Mr. J. had removed into the house, I paid him a visit. We were standing by the open window and conversing. A van containing some articles of furniture which he was moving from his former house was at the door. I had just urged on him my theory that all these phenomena, regarded as supermundane, had emanated from a human brain adducing the charm, or rather curse, we had found and destroyed, in support of my theory. 
Mr. J was observing in reply that even if mesmerism, or whatever analogous power it might be called, could really thus work in the absence of the operator, and produce effects so extraordinary, still could those effects continue when the operator himself was dead. And if the spell had been wrought, and indeed the room walled up more than seventy years ago, the probability was that the operator had long since departed this life. Mr. J., I say, was thus answering when I caught hold of his arm and pointed to the street below. A well-dressed man had crossed from the opposite side and was accosting the carrier in charge of the van. His face, as he stood, was exactly fronting our window. It was the face of the miniature we had discovered. It was the face of the portrait of the noble three centuries ago. "'Good heavens!' cried Mr. J. "'That is the face of Devee, and scarcely a day older than when I saw it in the Rajah's court in my youth.' Seized by the same thought, we both hastened downstairs. I was first in the street, but the man had already gone. I caught sight of him, however, not many yards in advance, and in another moment I was by his side. I had resolved to speak to him, but when I looked into his face I felt as if it were impossible to do so. That eye, the eye of the serpent, fixed and held me spellbound. And withal, about the man's whole person there was a dignity, an air of pride and station and superiority, that would have made anyone habituated to the usages of the world hesitate long before venturing upon a liberty or impertinence. And what could I say? What was it I could ask? Thus ashamed of my first impulse, I fell a few paces back, still, however, following the stranger, undecided what else to do. Meanwhile, he turned the corner of the street. A plain carriage was in waiting with a servant out of livery, dressed like a valet de place, at the carriage door. In another moment, he had stepped into the carriage and it drove off. I returned to the house. Mr. J. was still at the street door. He had asked the carrier what the stranger had said to him. Merely asked whom that house now belonged to. The same evening, I happened to go with a friend to a place in town called the Cosmopolitan Club, a place open to men of all countries, all opinions, all degrees. One orders one's coffee, smokes one's cigar, one is always sure to meet agreeable, sometimes remarkable persons. I had not been two minutes in the room before I beheld at the table conversing with an acquaintance of mine, whom I will now designate by the initial G, the man, the original of the miniature. He was now without his hat, and the likeness was yet more startling, only I observed that while he was conversing, there was less severity in the countenance. There was even a smile, though a very quiet and very cold one. The dignity of mien I had acknowledged in the street was also more striking. A dignity akin to which invests some prince of the East, conveying the idea of supreme indifference and habitual, indisputable, indolent but resistless power. G soon after left the stranger, who then took up a scientific journal, which seemed to absorb his attention. I drew G aside. Who and what is that gentleman? That, oh, a very remarkable man indeed. I met him last year amid the caves of Petra, the scriptural Edom. He is the best Oriental scholar I know. 
We joined company, had an adventure with robbers, in which he showed a coolness that saved our lives. Afterward, he invited me to spend a day with him in a house he had bought at Damascus, buried among almond blossoms and roses, the most beautiful thing. He had lived there for some time, quite as an Oriental, in grand style. I half suspect he is a renegade, immensely rich, very odd. By the by, a great mesmerizer. I have seen him, with my own eyes, produce an effect on inanimate things. If you take a letter from your pocket and throw it to the other end of the room, he will order it to come to his feet, and you will see the letter wriggle itself along the floor till it has obeyed his command. Upon my honor, tis true. I have seen him affect even the weather, disperse or collect clouds by means of a glass tube or wand. But he does not like talking of these matters to strangers. He has only just arrived in England. Says he has not been here for a great many years. Let me introduce him to you. Certainly. He is English, then. What is his name? Oh, a very homely one. Richards. And what is his birth, his family? How do I know? What does it signify? No doubt some parvenu. But rich, so infernally rich. G drew me up to the stranger, and the introduction was effected. The manners of Mr. Richards were not those of an adventurous traveler. Travelers are, in general, gifted with high animal spirits. They are talkative, eager, imperious. Mr. Richards was calm and subdued in tone, with manners which were made distant by the loftiness of punctilious courtesy, the manners of a former age. I observed that the English he spoke was not exactly of our day. I should even have said that the accent was slightly foreign. But then Mr. Richards remarked that he had been little in the habit for years of speaking in his native tongue. The conversation fell upon the changes in the aspect of London since he had last visited our metropolis. G. then glanced off to the moral changes, literary, social, political, the great men who were removed from the stage within the last twenty years, the new great men who were coming in. In all this, Mr. Richards evinced no interest. He had evidently read none of our living authors and seemed scarcely acquainted by name with our younger statesmen. Once, and only once, he laughed. It was when G. asked him whether he had any thoughts of getting into Parliament, and the laugh was inward, sarcastic, sinister. A sneer raised into a laugh. After a few minutes, G. left us to talk to some other acquaintance who had just lounged into the room, and I then said quietly, I have seen a miniature of you, Mr. Richards, in the house you once inhabited, and perhaps built, if not wholly at least in part in Oxford Street. You passed by that house this morning. Not till I had finished did I raise my eyes to his, and then he fixed my gaze so steadfastly that I could not withdraw it. Those fascinating serpent eyes. But involuntarily, as if the words that translated my thoughts were dragged from me, I added in a low whisper, I have been a student in the mysteries of life and nature. Of those mysteries, I have known the occult professors. I have the right to speak to you thus. And I uttered a certain password. Well, I concede the right. What would you ask? To what extent human will in certain temperaments can extend? 
To what extent can thought extend? Think, and before you draw breath, you are in China. True, but my thought has no power in China. Give it expression and it may have. You may write down a thought which, sooner or later, may alter the whole condition of China. What is a law but a thought? Therefore, thought is infinite. Therefore, thought has power. Not in proportion to its value. A bad thought may make a bad law as potent as a good thought can make a good one. Yes, what you say confirms my own theory. Through invisible currents, one human brain may transmit its ideas to another human brain. With the same rapidity as a thought promulgated by visible means. And as thought is imperishable, as it leaves its stamp behind it in the natural world, even when the thinker is passed out of this world, so the thought of the living may have power to rouse up and revive the thoughts of the dead, such as those thoughts were in life. Though the thought of the living cannot reach the thoughts which the dead now may entertain. Is it not so? I decline to answer. Even my judgment... Thought has the limit you would fix to it. But proceed. You have a special question you wish to put. Intense malignity in an intense will, engendered in a peculiar temperament and aided by natural means within the reach of science, may produce effects like those ascribed of old to evil magic. It might thus haunt the walls of a human habitation with spectral revivals, of all guilty thoughts and guilty deeds once conceived and done within those walls. All, in short, with which the evil will claims rapport and affinity. Imperfect, incoherent, fragmentary snatches at the old dramas acted therein years ago. Thoughts, thus crossing each other haphazard as in the nightmare of a vision, growing up into phantom sights and sounds, and all serving to create horror not because those sights and sounds are really visitations from a world without, but that they are ghastly, monstrous renewals of what would have been in this world itself set into malignant play by a malignant mortal. And it is through the material agency of that human brain that these things would acquire even human power, would strike as with the shock of electricity, and might kill if the thought of the person assailed did not rise superior to the dignity of the original assailer, might kill the most powerful animal if unnerved by fear, but not injure the feeblest man if, while his flesh crept, his mind stood out fearless. Thus, when in old stories we read of a magician rent to pieces by the fiends he had invoked, or still more in Eastern legends, that one magician succeeds by arts in destroying another, there may be so far truth that a material being has clothed from his own evil propensities certain elements and fluids, usually quiescent or harmless, with awful shapes and terrific force. Just as the lightning that had lain hidden and innocent in the cloud becomes by natural law suddenly visible, takes a distinct shape to the eye, and can strike destruction on the object to which it is attracted. You are not without glimpses of a mighty secret, said Mr. Richards, composedly. According to your view, could a mortal obtain the power you speak of? He would necessarily be a malignant and evil being. If the power were exercised as I have said, most malignant and most evil. 
though I believe in the ancient traditions that he could not injure the good. His will could only injure those with whom it has established an affinity, or over whom it forces unresisted sway. I will now imagine an example that may be within the laws of nature, yet seem wild as the fables of a bewildered monk. You will remember that Albertus Magnus, after describing minutely the process by which the spirits may be invoked and commanded, adds emphatically that the process will instruct and avail only to the few, that a man must be born a magician, that is, born with a peculiar physical temperament, as a man is born a poet. Rarely are men in whose constitutions lurks this occult power of the highest order of intellect. Usually, in the intellect there is some twist, perversity, or disease. But on the other hand, they must possess, to an astonishing degree, the faculty to concentrate thought on a single object, the energic faculty that we call will. Therefore, though their intellect be not sound, it is exceedingly forcible for the attainment of what it desires. I will imagine such a person preeminently gifted with this constitution and its concomitant forces. I will place him in the loftier grades of society. I will suppose his desires emphatically those of the sensualist. He has, therefore, a strong love of life. He is an absolute egotist. His will is concentrated in himself. He has fierce passions. He knows no enduring, no holy affections. But he can covet eagerly what, for the moment, he desires. He can hate implacably what opposes itself to his objects. He can commit fearful crimes, yet feel small remorse. He resorts rather to curses upon others than to penitence for his misdeeds. Circumstances to which his constitution guides him lead him to a rare knowledge of the natural secrets which may serve his egotism. He is a close observer where his passions encourage observation. He is a minute calculator, not from love of truth, but where love of self sharpens his faculties. Therefore, he can be a man of science. I suppose such a being, having by experience learned the power of his arts over others, trying what may be the power of will over his own frame, and studying all that in natural philosophy may increase that power. He loves life, he dreads death. He wills to live on. He cannot restore himself to youth, he cannot entirely stay the progress of death. He cannot make himself immortal in the flesh and blood. But he may arrest for a time so long as to appear incredible if I said it, that hardening of the parts which constitutes old age. A year may age him no more than an hour ages another. His intense will, scientifically trained into system, operates, in short, over the wear and tear of his own frame. He lives on. That he may not seem a portent and a miracle, he dies, from time to time, seemingly, to certain persons. Having schemed the transfer of a wealth that suffices to his wants, he disappears from one corner of the world and contrives that his obsequies shall be celebrated. He reappears at another corner of the world where he resides undetected and does not visit the scenes of his former career, till all who could remember his features are no more. He would be profoundly miserable if he had affections. He has none but for himself. No good man would accept his longevity. 
and to no man, good or bad, would he or could he communicate its true secret. Such a man might exist. Such a man as I have described, I see now before me. Duke of blank, in the court of blank, dividing time between lust and brawl, alchemists and wizards. Again in the last century, charlatan and criminal, with name less noble, domiciled in the house at which you gaze today, and flying from the law, you had outraged, none knew whither. Traveler once more revisiting London, with the same earthly passion which filled your heart, when races now no more walked through yonder streets. Outlaw, from the school of all the nobler and diviner mysteries. Execrable image of life and death and death and life, I warn you back from the cities and homes of healthful men, back to the ruins of departed empires, back to the deserts of nature unredeemed. There seemed to me a whisper so musical, so potently musical, that it seemed to enter into my whole being and subdue me despite myself. Thus it said, I have sought one like you for the last hundred years. Now I have found you. We part not till I know what I desire. The vision that sees through the past and cleaves through the veil of the future is in you at this hour. Never before, never to come again. The vision of no pulling fantastic girl, of no sickbed somnambule, but of a strong man with a vigorous brain. Soar and look forth. As he spoke, I felt as if I rose out of myself upon eagle wings. All the weight seemed gone from it. Seemed gone from air. Roofless the room, roofless the dome of space. I was not in the body, where I knew not, but aloft, over time, over earth. Again I heard the melodious whisper. You say right. I have mastered great secrets by the power of will. True, by will and by science, I can retard the process of years. But death comes not by age alone. Can I frustrate the accidents which bring death upon the young? No, every accident is a providence. Before a providence snaps every human will. Shall I die at last, ages and ages hence, by the slow though inevitable growth of time, or by the cause that I call accident? By a cause you call accident. Is not the end still remote? asked the whisper, with a slight tremor. Regarded as my life regards time, it is still remote. And shall I, before then, mix with the world of men, as I did ere I learned these secrets? Resume eager interest in their strife and their trouble, battle with ambition, and use the power of the sage to win the power that belongs to kings. You will yet play a part on the earth that will fill earth with commotion and amaze. For wondrous designs have you, a wonder yourself, been permitted to live on through the centuries. All the secrets you have stored will then have their uses. All that now makes you a stranger amid the generations will contribute then to make you their lord. As the trees and the straws are drawn into a whirlpool, as they spin round, are sucked deep, and again tossed aloft by the eddies. Social races and thrones be drawn into your vortex. Awful destroyer, but in destroying made against your own will a constructor. And that date, too, is far off? Far off, 
When it comes, think your end in this world is at hand. How and what is the end? Look east, west, south, and north. In the north, where you never yet trod toward the point whence your instincts have warned you, there a specter will seize you. Tis death. I see a ship. It is haunted. Tis chaste. It sails on. Baffled navies sail after that ship. It enters the region of ice. It passes a sky red with meteors. Two moons stand on high over ice reefs. I see the ship locked between white defiles. They are ice rocks. I see the dead strew the decks, stark and livid, green mold on their limbs. All are dead but one man. It is you. But years, though so slowly they come, have then scathed you. There is the coming of age on your brow, and the will is relaxed in the cells of the brain. Still that will, though enfeebled, exceeds all that man knew before you. Through the will you live on, gnawed with famine. And nature no longer obeys you in that death-spreading region. The sky is a sky of iron, and the air has iron clamps. And the ice rocks wedge in the ship. Hark how it cracks and groans. Ice will embed it as amber embeds a straw. And a man has gone forth, living yet, from the ship and its dead. And he has clambered up the spikes of an iceberg, and the two moons gaze down on his form. That man is yourself, and terror is on you. Terror, and terror, has swallowed up your will. And I see, swarming up the steep ice rock, gray, grisly things. The bears of the north have scented their quarry. They come nearer and nearer, shambling and rolling their bulk. In that day, every moment shall seem to you longer than the centuries through which you have passed. Heed this. After life, moments continued make the bliss or the hell of eternity. Hush, said the whisper. But the day you assure me is far off, very far. I go back to the almond and rose of Damascus. Sleep. The room swam before my eyes. I became insensible. When I recovered, I found G holding my hand and smiling. He said, You, who have always declared yourself proof against mesmerism, have succumbed at last to my friend Richards. Where is Mr. Richards? Gone, when you passed into a trance, saying quietly to me, Your friend will not wake for an hour. I asked as collectedly as I could where Mr. Richards lodged. At the Trafalgar Hotel. Give me your arm, I said to G. Let us call on him. I have something to say. When we arrived at the hotel, we were told that Mr. Richards had returned twenty minutes before, paid his bill, left directions with his servant, a Greek, to pack his effects, and proceed to Malta by the steamer that should leave Southampton the next day. Mr. Richards had merely said of his own movements that he had visits to pay in the neighborhood of London, and it was uncertain whether he should be able to reach Southampton in time for that steamer. If not, he should follow the next one. The waiter asked me my name. On my informing him, he gave me a note that Mr. Richards had left for me in case I called. The note was as follows. I wished you to utter what was in your mind. You obeyed. 
I have therefore established power over you. For three months from this day, you can communicate to no living man what has passed between us. You cannot even show this note to the friend by your side. During three months, silence complete as to me and mine. Do you doubt my power to lay on you this command? Try to disobey me. At the end of the third month, the spell is raised. For the rest, I spare you. I shall visit your grave a year and a day after it has received you. So ends this strange story, which I ask no one to believe. I write it down exactly three months after I received the above note. I could not write it before, nor could I have shown to G, in spite of his urgent request, the note which I read under the gas lamp by his side. THE HAUNTED PALACE by Edgar Allan Poe In the greenest of our valleys, by good angels tenanted, Once a fair and stately palace, radiant palace, reared its head. In the monarch thought's dominion, it stood there. Never seraph spread a pinion over fabric half so fair. Banners, yellow, glorious, golden, on its roof did float and flow. This, all this, was in the olden time long ago. And every gentle air that dallied in that sweet day, along the ramparts plumed and pallid, a winged odor went away. Wanderers in that happy valley, through two luminous windows, saw spirits moving musically to a lute's well-tuned law. Round about a throne where, sitting, Porphyrogene, in state his glory well befitting, the ruler of the realm was seen. And all with pearl and ruby glowing was the fair palace door, through which came flowing, 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 and sparkling evermore. A troop of echoes, whose sweet duty was but to sing, in voices of surpassing beauty, the wit and wisdom of their king. But evil things, in robes of sorrow, assailed the monarch's high estate. Ah, let us mourn, for never morrow shall dawn upon him, desolate. And round about his home the glory, that blushed and bloomed, is but a dim-remembered story of the old time entombed. And travelers now, within that valley, through the red-litten windows see, Vast forms that move fantastically to a discordant melody. While, like a ghastly rapid river, through the pale door, a hideous throng rush out forever and laugh but smile no more.
Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 